0: Hello, on this week's episode of Silent Generation, we're gonna be talking about prep in the mid-2000s. As part of this, we're gonna coin a new term called logo prep, which is a aesthetic description of the popular brands that were very dominant in this era, such as Edinburgh, & Fitch, Aeropostale, and Pink. But it hasn't really been described and clumped together into an aesthetic description. So we're going to coin that today, but we'll talk about PrEP a bit more generally, and we're going to discuss why we think PrEP evolved the way it did in the mid-2000s and what we can maybe take away from it today. Mm -hmm. I'm Nathan. I'm Joseph. So Joseph, you know a lot more about PrEP than I do. Your aesthetic is definitely a lot preppier right now (laughs) as you're sitting in front of me. You're wearing (laughs) wearing corduroy pants, a button-up, a belt. Very preppy. So how would you describe prep and specifically like prep in the 2000s? Yeah,
1: I'll do the, the quick yeah, primer on prep and also sometimes called like Ivy League or trad style, which like from its name comes from the style of students going to the Ivy League universities on the East Coast of the US. I guess you could say it started in the 20s and 30s, but not too much of that survives nowadays. Like one of the big fashions for a like a cool college college student in the 1920s and 30s would be to wear like a raccoon skin coat, which is wild, that would be cool if that came back, but I do not see that happening. I, what's more intelligible to us nowadays is like the prep of the 50s and 60s. Like young people were going to school en masse. Um, there was also a lot of like military Students, basically, people who had gotten GI Bill money and were now going to schools. We pictured, I mean, of course, most of them went to, like, state schools and stuff like that. But you could also use that money for going to Ivy League schools. So that's where stuff like khakis comes in. That was just much more of a military thing. And then it became, like, a civilian wear kind of deal um, in the 50s and 60s. Basically, like, preppy trad clothing. It's a lot of Oxford cloth button downs, which is what I'm wearing right now. Oxford cloth is like a softer, more casual cotton dress shirt fabric, crew neck sweaters, pleated pants, penny loafers, a lot of stuff like that. And so it kind of just survived for the rest of the 60s, 70s, 80s. I think it's always, there's always been people who dress kind of preppy and trad. Different wider cultural uh, fashion things for men would kind of seep in to preppy dressing. Basically in the 60s, you had hippies
0: and that really changed things. Yeah, because I don't know that much about prep, but I know that there have been different things like equestrian wear, also Mm -hmm. like boating apparel. Like there's different things that can come in and out of style within prep.
1: Oh, yeah. No, it it, like it has a very like sporty language that can draw from Uh, rugby shirts are a classic prep thing. Crew neck sweaters just come from crewing also. But yeah, there's a sportiness tennis sweaters. That's another one like a white cable knit tennis sweater with a green collar. So yeah, in the 80s, uh, cuts were a little boxier, Italian suits were very in, but there were still you know, trad dressing as well. And then bringing us into the 90s and 2000s, this is the ascendancy of Ralph Lauren. He was kind of like carrying the torch of trad stuff, but adding his own twist to it. He was not from uh, like a blue-blooded background, he's just a Jewish guy. But uh, yeah, he really like took to the uh, iconography of prep style. His first big items were uh, actually ties that he would make, just these very luxurious ties with like interesting patterns. But I think what we know him for nowadays is like the Ralph Lauren polo shirt with his little logo of an equestrian like polo player on it. Um, and I think that is what brings us to this era. This was, cause pol- like logos have been on stuff forever, specifically polo shirts, like the Lacoste polo shirt, you know, the little alligator, that one, that, that was like the personal logo of a great tennis player, Rene Lacoste, who's known as like the alligator or the crocodile, I forget. But early Ralph Lauren stuff, he was doing uh, pieces like the polo coat. That's a very long like camel colored uh, wool coat. And then the three button like brass button blazer. But, and those were well selling items and people loved them, but it was when he really started making the logo kind of the center of things that I think things really took off. Cause then you could buy a bit of the, you know, Ralph Lauren, vision and aesthetic.
0: Yeah. So for me, I always associate prep with the suburbs because I grew up in the inner city. And there were people in my school that I would see wearing like Aeropostale and Air McCombie and Fitch occasionally. But I always had this association between it and the suburbs. I've never had too much of an experience with prep until maybe high school. And I went to a prep school, actually. Or was a preparatory high school, it was in the name. And so within that school, I was exposed to it a bit more. But I've never really worn preppy clothing, gone to stores that sold preppy clothing, or really, like, known too much about it. But this aesthetic in the 2000s was so dominant and inescapable that it's, like, seared into my mind as being the most emblematic of its era. Mm-hmm. I
1: think another name we could've gone for this would be like mall prep as well. Cause malls are so important to this. Like this clothing was, you know, in style late nineties into mid two thousands. Like, I don't know if this was numbers wise, the heyday of the mall, maybe the early nineties, the mall was more powerful. I'm trying to think, but this is pre death of the mall. I think you can date, oh God, I think the last like indoor mall built was like built in 2008 or something. But yeah, because we're, you know, we're past the era of malls. Um, they've had to like retool themselves to try and stay relevant.
0: So malls were really important to Logo Prep because malls allowed you to purchase from brands like Amber & Fitch, Aeropostale, Hollister, American Eagle, and Pink. And you could go into all of these brands and get an idea of what the image of these brands were from. The advertisements in the store, the employees in the store, and the people shopping there. If you want to get an idea of what Logo Prep looked like, you can look at our Pinterest board that we made for this week. You'll see things on it like American Eagle sweaters, Abercrombie and Fitch models, UGG boots. All of these things that were really prevalent at the time that I don't really see reference now anywhere on social media. Because the way that, like, Gen Z is interpreting the mid-2000s is cool, but it doesn't really get how uncool it was at the time. People looked really schlumpy, um, especially the dudes, but even girls. Like, the way that, say, the hottest girl in school would dress would be Ugg boots, leggings as pants, some sort of sweater with Ember Commune Fitch or Mm. Apostle, and then they'd have a pound of makeup on their face that was supposed to be the saving grace, but actually just proved how sad it was that they didn't put effort into everything else.
1: Yeah, it was, yeah, the size of the logos really grew in this period. Um, Like the standard uh, Ralph Lauren little polo man figure, like is really only like maybe an inch tall. But I remember seeing these shirts like in the 2000s, they had a gigantic embroidered polo scene like across it. And then picturing like Tommy Hilfiger shirts where the entire shirt is the Tommy Hilfiger logo. But I wonder where they're at now. They're still using the logo on their garments? Mm -hmm. Things have, like, yeah, nowadays, like these brands are like limping along. Like Abercrombie & Fitch is still around, but now they're focusing more on basics and they have stuff with like small to no logos or just a little tag logo on the side. Um, Yeah, like just like anything in fashion, it reaches a certain zenith and then people get annoyed and then things go backwards. Um,
0: These brands will probably be back and be popular in the near future though mm-hmm. because like tommy hilfiger it was able to become popular in like the last 10 years after it really fell out of popularity post 90s yeah. and all these brands have made it they still exist which can happen to other brands that aren't as successful where they weren't quite like managed correctly in their decline and they didn't survive And it's interesting
1: with fashion brands because they always just get bought up and retooled into something they totally aren't sometimes. Yeah. Quick thing on Abercrombie and Fitch. So they're, they're a weird one because they're actually a very, very old company, like early, late 1800s. It was like for rich guys in New York who wanted to like pretend that they were outdoorsmen for the weekend. And so like half the appeal for them was going to a nice outfitter and like buying the gear and the fly fishing rod and all that. I actually have a, family friend who has a shotgun that he purchased from Abercrombie and Fitch back when it was that style of retailer. Yeah, but then it just couldn't survive in the 70s. Um, It's interesting because other kind of comparable places did. L.L. Bean is still around, you know, they've always been like an outdoorsy outfitter, but they also sell to, you know, just people who want a nice sweater.
0: Yeah, on Abercrombie and Fitch, we both looked at two sources to learn quite a lot about it. We watched the Netflix documentary White Hot. We also read Why I Hate Amber Combi and Fitch by Dwight A. McBride, which is an essay from a larger book that looks at like race and sexuality in different ways. Both of these go into the history of the brand quite a lot and touch on how the later CEO, Mike Jeffries, was the one to really revitalize the brand, um, which is funny because we have a long-lost episode. <laughs> we deleted a file. By accident we're going to need to re-record it but in this long lost episode somehow it came up the brand amber and fitch and we're having this discussion where i was like how in the middle of the mid-2000s did this brand that would sell clothing that was then put in bags where you'd walk out the store with like two shirtless guys on it yeah. and this was like peak like Homophobia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. This was like guys using
1: phrases like "no homo" and stuff, and like if you just watched a Mad TV episode, there'd probably be something not great about gay people. No, Wait. it was like such a yeah a
0: uh, schizophrenic period. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I speculated on that long lost episode. I was like, I feel like there's probably a gay guy that was put in charge of this company and then was like, I want more hot guys. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and you
1: were right. So. Yeah,
0: Abercrombie & Fitch, when it came on this hard times, then Mike
1: Jeffries uh, was brought in to run the brand, and then he spun it off of its parent company. It became a, you know, initial public, it became a publicly traded company, um, and they were just doing great sales-wise. And, yeah, they got rid of all the outdoorsy stuff, and they just turned it into aspirational lifestyle clothing. And the very common commentary at the time, because this, this brand had plenty of haters back in the day. Um, in the documentary, they talk about this, that, like, you know, since this was pre-internet, you know, when they were um, powerful, you brands had a lot more even say of how they're being interpreted. Like, the little guy's voice was not as voluble pre-Twitter and stuff. So, like, I, tons of people hated Abercrombie, like, where I grew up. People were like, oh, like, especially the more alt kids, like, saw Abercrombie as just the, like, popular kid clothing um, for, like, I don't know. Yeah, I
0: I never had an aversion to it when I was younger because of its associations with class or anything. It was more strictly like it didn't look good. I didn't like logos, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it be Nike or Amber Cumbie & Fitch. I wasn't interested in wearing anything Mm -hmm. that had a logo on it. Yeah, Mike Jeffries, for some of you listening, might ring a bell because he's been in the news quite a lot lately because of some Me Too-esque allegations by male models Mike Jeffries, like, it's going to be in court over some pretty serious allegations. And the other part of Abercrombie's, like, visual image,
1: like, yes, it was Mike Jeffries changing the actual products being sold, but it was really Bruce Weber, the photographer. So he was the one who took these black and white shots of scantily clad men. And, like, one of the phrases they use in White Hot is that, like, Fam- like fashion is famous for not using a lot of market research. Like they don't kind of want to know what people want. They'll just make something and then sell it to people, which I, I kind of respect. Um, you're not just giving people like what they immediately want. You have to like invent some new need. And I mean, yeah, they were selling sex. They're also selling yeah, exclusivity. This was, yes, people said that this is what Ralph Lauren sold as well, which is true. Like he was also selling like a blue blooded kind of luxury Um, But it was a little less sexy in Ralph Lauren stuff. People would be in three-piece suits. People would be like, you know, women in traditional long dresses and stuff. They didn't really have that, like, sex component
0: that Abercrombie was not afraid of and brought into it. Yeah, I didn't realize before watching White Hot, I didn't realize that Abercrombie Fitch went to such levels of transgression with their sexual media. Yeah,
1: it was (laughs) kind of wild, like, because malls were just so, like, in every sense of the word middle American, income, location, Everything, they were just like supposed to appeal to the common denominator broadly. And then you just yeah. had like these.
0: Yeah, things. I saw like, I saw way more skin, like mm-hmm. basically fully nude images of Amber and Fitch models, which I never realized they did that with their media. Yeah. And both that, and then also the way that they would hire employees and also the power of their CEO. All of this really reminded me of American Apparel. Mm-hmm. American Apparel was known for being very sexual. But the way that they ran things was they wanted to make clothing that was ethical. They wanted to have models that were definitely more diverse than Abercrombie and Fitch. But they also sold things in a very sexual way. And then also they had their employees sort of serve as like living mannequins within their stores where they wanted them to fit like a certain image. So both in the essay that we read and then also the movie that we watched, there was this really big um, lawsuit against and Fitch that got settled for $40 million where um, a bunch of plaintiffs who are people of color, they sued and Fitch because they were either not hired or they were fired or they were just discriminated against in Mm -hmm. other ways. And so as part of that, they mentioned that they had like an employee grading system where every employee was rated like A to F. And how hot they anymore. were oh, yeah. and then they would do these things called blitzes where people from the higher up levels of amber Company and fitch would visit individual stores and then they'd be like these people aren't hot enough we need to replace them
1: mm-hmm. no and was- this
0: reminded me of american apparel because i used to work there and fun fact doug charney the ceo and founder of american apparel he would look at every single individual person who got hired for retail at American insane. Apparel because you had to send in headshots as part of your application. And so I know for, for me, I, I was hired right before Deb Charney was removed as CEO of American uh-huh. Apparel. So I got approved by him. But by the time I was hired, my employee number was like 75075. He looked at 75,000 people. That's insane. And said, like, yes or no.
1: Oh, my God. Or probably
0: more than 75,000 yeah. because I'm sure he said no all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, there's a lot of
1: parallels between the two. I, I do think American Apparel comes out on top because it was actually about clothes, too. Like, Abercrombie seemed less about the physical clothes in any way, like... But American Apparel, like, from the... I don't know, the interesting cuts of everything to, like, the fabrics and the garment dyeing process, like, it was about the the actual item you ended up with. Um, But it was so much more fleeting with Abercrombie. They just made their stuff in China. What's interesting is that they didn't really, from my understanding, they just had kind of one line of Abercrombie, right? There wasn't like Abercrombie Lux or something. Because Ralph Lauren has like Ralph Lauren Purple Label, which is like made in the U.S. and super nice. And then they have like what are called diffusion lines that are sold in discount stores. But Abercrombie was this kind of like one-size-fits-all model of like... If you buy this shirt, you've bought into the Abercrombie dream. And it wasn't crazily priced. I mean, they were, yeah, they had great profits. Um, in the documentary, they talk about, like, their graphic tees had, like, an insane profit margin. But it was accessible to people, and it was sold in your town or the other
0: town over in the local mall. Uh, another parallel yeah, between well, them. Yeah. They do actually have divisions. So there's Abercrombie & Fitch, mainline brand, Abercrombie Kids, Hollis Co., and Gilly Hicks. Mhm. So there's multiple companies. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, there's definitely yeah, uh, so Hollister was there like Californian kind of instead of selling the East Coast vibes, they just sold very similar stuff but in a West yeah, Coast Yeah, more beachy. Yeah, much more beachy flip-flops and all that. I think Mike Jeffries, he's originally from
0: California? Southern California, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he looks like it.
1: Yeah, like he's a- he like <laughs> He is just such a classic like you see him, and you read about it, and you're like, "Oh yeah, that makes so much sense." He's clearly chasing youth; is the thing. He's gotten ton of tons of botched plastic surgeries. He's very insistent on like having his like beach boy blonde hair.
0: He's like crystallized his idea of like what he should look like, even as like an old man. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and so you can just tell he's just fighting it.
1: And in terms of fighting, like they really did they fought everything like when it comes to court cases. Like they went all the way to to the Supreme Court with their discrimination thing. They just, typical company behavior was like, you know, just like tuck your tail between your legs, pay the settlement out of court, and just like be done with it. But they like really dug in their heels on things. I don't know why they had this like, I think it must have come direction from the top from Mike that you know, you don't back down and this kind of thing. Yeah. I, another parallel with American Apparel is, you know, Dov Charney, CEO. But then he had his photographer, Terry Richardson, who defined the look of American apparel. And for them, it was the like, high flash photography, sexually flash. suggestive, huh? Direct flash. Direct flash. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> it's just so like, and then Dov Charney and Terry Richardson both have Me Too allegations. And then Mike Jeffries and Bruce Weber both have Me Too allegations or just this, these duos of like, you have the zig or other zag kind of business side of it. And then you you know what's funny
0: too is virtual. like American Apparel's clothes are so much gayer. Doug <laughs> Charney and Terry Richardson are both straight. Yeah. So. No, it is. It, they feel like these two different sides of like,
1: yeah, straight American Apparel and gay. <laughs> but that, that's how
0: like men's fashion is right now though. Where, like all yeah. the straight guys want to look like gay guys and all the gay guys want to look like straight yeah, guys.
1: No, that's a common thing.
0: <laughs> um, in... Mike Jeffery's like rules for how
1: um, store employees or brand reps, as they were known, um, it is very, it, it's, so, it's not just gay, it's closeted is what it feels like. It's, it's clearly gay, the like, men on the walls and all that, but it's also, he's just, he wasn't out at the time either. I think only in the mid 2000s um, did he like, finally come out of the closet. But he's also very insistent on the women. The women had to dress very feminine as well, he was also like invested in policing. Like the men had to be man's men, masculine, not too femme. And the the women had to be like, you know, like dresses or like conventionally feminine things. Um, Yeah. There was a lot of dislike of like alternative anything. Like they explicitly disallowed thumb rings because that is like a queer thing, I guess. Um, I don't know anyone who wears those. I don't either, but I think that might have been a 90s queer thing, maybe. But yeah, and they were able to just successfully like yeah sell this vision to America, but you didn't see much of this at your school growing up.
0: Abercrombie and Fitch or no, you did. Yeah. Well, people wore it, but so was the elementary school or? I went to was more like it was a CPS school. It was majority like Latino, and so people wore Echo and Limited quite a lot. Echo and mm-hmm. Limited, they would have like a rhino, and oftentimes the they would have the same sort of logo, like elements on a t-shirt with big text, the name of the brand, the logo, but then it would have like graffiti-esque elements. It was definitely Mm -hmm. being marketed as like an urban streetwear brand. Mm -hmm. And so I would see that more. And then once I was in high school, the high school I went to, one of my fellow classmates once described it as being bohemian. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of was. It was like, you know, people started to get clothing from the thrift shops mostly. It wasn't uh, as common to see people wearing logo prep clothing. But on Abercrombie & Fitch, I do want to talk a little bit more about the essay, Why I Hate Abercrombie Mm & Fitch by Dwayne A. McBride. Um, It's a really good essay. I do think, though, that I think the observations are good. I don't think it's coming from (laughs) the best place because the author is gay. And I think that like too many examples, it's a gay guy who's just mad about people who won't sleep with him. Mm -hmm. Um, But the observations are really good. So when he's writing it um, in 2003, the lawsuit hasn't quite been settled yet. And he's interviewing some of the people that actually are later in the documentary. Um, like there are some names that he includes that I then saw in, in White Hot. In his essay, he starts out with a really good quote from Lo- No Logo by Naomi Klein. The astronomical growth in wealth and cultural influence of multinational corporations over the last 15 years can arguably be traced back to a single, seemingly innocuous idea developed by a management theorist in the mid-1980s, that successful corporations must primarily produce brands as opposed to products. So I don't know, are you familiar with Naomi Klein? Um, not
1: too much. I started watching um, that video you
0: posted. Yeah. Of the so no, no, Naomi Klein is sort of... I've heard that her be described as like the oracle of the left. (laughs) She's not an academic, but she's had way more, way more impact than most academics do. And I like looked into No Logo and I learned that um, she's sort of this is the source of this idea of being like a consumer versus a citizen. One of the main podcasts I listen to is Breaking Points, and on it, Ryan Grimm. It's constantly talking about the distinction between being like a consumer and a citizen and Mm -hmm. how like Americans have made this bargain to give up their power within society for like cheaper goods, basically. Mm -hmm. But what she was talking about in that quote about lifestyle brands is really important. So that's a term I've heard my whole life, but I didn't really think about it too much until researching for this week. So a lifestyle brand is when like the advertising will give a consumer, the idea of wanting to buy what, like a product is associated with. So for Abercrombie and Fitch, it's like being around hot people. Mm-hmm. Hot partying. People buy a body of water. I feel yeah, like was
1: always the thing, like a swimming hole. You yeah, know, just being beautiful.
0: It's also wealth too. Mm-hmm. So one really important thing about why logo prep was so popular was, I mean, this is more so toward its towards the later half, but. You know, around the time of the Great Recession, Americans wanted to be able to prove that they weren't falling behind economically. And one of the best ways to do that was by just signaling that with a brand on a sweater or t T-shirt. Whether or not the clothing looked good, what you were showing was just that you could afford it and you weren't like some of your other peers that might be starting to go through financial difficulties.
1: hmm yeah. It was just known that they were like, the logo made it more expensive. It was just a value add, <laughs> basically. I had a roommate who was very into just, like, logo clothing. Um, Like, Armani, just, like, more of the fashion houses as opposed to the brands we've been talking about. But he told me, he said this very matter-of-factly as though it was objectively true. But he was like, oh, yeah, if an event calls for, like, a dress shirt or something, I'd rather wear a T-shirt, but I'll make sure that it's, like, a high fashion brand logo on it because that, you know, brings it back up. It brings it to the level of a dress shirt. To which I think, no, that's wrong. (laughs) That's that's (laughs) Like, you haven't found some weird, like, it's not this compensatory model where like, oh, a shirt is more casual, but a logo makes it more formal. Like, no, <laughs> yeah. but like it shows the, the power we gave to
0: these. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean clothing largely has lost much of, much of its meaning because pretty much all of it is just being worn for fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like all of the things that it used to do for you to like regulate temperature, help with climate, Um, do physical activity. People are doing all of those things less and less. (laughs) Like, you're just sitting at home, and, like, if you take a picture of yourself, what you're wearing is just a look. The idea of the look is, like, increasingly prevalent. But Abercrombie & Fitch and all of these other brands that are part of Logo Prep, they're very responsible for this backsliding and formality in American fashion. Mm. So... At this time, this was when people started to wear yoga pants as pants or leggings as pants. They started to wear sweaters day in, day out, in the office, at home, wherever. And concurrently, you could wear, like, you know, a a hoodie that had, like, one of these logos on it. Or you could just wear a hoodie. People were starting to dress more informal at the same time. Mm -hmm. But this was, like, a bridge where, like, you could... You could wear the hoodie from American Eagle, or you could wear the hoodie from American Apparel. Yeah. And with both of them, people are still just starting to dress less formal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it was, it was like the great dressing
1: down really happened, I think, in the late 90s and 2000s. I mean, it's always been a, a sloping down in formality, definitely over the 1900s. But I don't know, just even watching um watching like Seinfeld, which I've talked about a few times on the podcast, I really like just the the vibe of it. Um, but yeah, the, even the like slubby characters wear tucked in dress shirts, you Yeah, know? Or not dress shirts, casual shirts, but they're still button downs, you know? Then this is, I don't know, we really see the end of that in this period. The T-shirt just starts to reign supreme,
0: basically. Yeah. Um, on Seinfeld, I want to bring up a point really quick. So you're familiar with normcore, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Normcore is a term that was coined by the trend forecasting group K-hole. K-Hole uh, if you go back and read their article that they published where they proposed NormCore, it actually was proposed as an umbrella term. The way people interpreted NormCore was that it was like this single aesthetic where it was going to be like basically Seinfeld esque clothing and mm-hmm. lightweight jeans, jeans and uh, a t shirt.
1: I was going to say, tucked in uh, casual shirt and then like chunky sneakers. That's a pretty yeah. Yeah, Jerry Seinfeldian look. But, uh,
0: yeah. But yeah, if you go back and you read what they thinking was the idea behind Normcore, it's really interesting. So they were looking at mass indie at the time, which they thought of mass indie as being like vaporwave, c punk, health basically all of these like individual aesthetics that were post-internet. And then they were saying that was like thinking about or talking to someone about your dreams, but Normcore was like talking about people, about the weather. And there's multiple ways to talk about the weather. One of them could be, like, SeinfeldCore. <laughs> Another could be logo prep. Another could be McBling. But, yeah, the term NormCore was sort of, like, co-opted by the actual fashion industry, which I don't think they ever intended to happen, but mm-hmm. Vogue started to use that word, uh, and it got way bigger than any yeah. of these other, like, mass indie things ever did. Wow, oh. interesting. Yeah, trend forecasting
1: is, I don't know how those people do it, like, uh, but as I said earlier, like, sometimes it just doesn't, you can forecast the trends, but then a company can just form a trend out of nowhere. You know. Um, yeah. Also, but, random thought: an interesting survivor of logo culture is uh, Supreme. You know, I mean, Survivor. I don't know if they're doing the numbers they used to. I don't know. I don't know if they have the same cultural cachet they used to. Um, but yeah, they took the logo thing, and they claim that it's like tom- tongue-in-cheek. You know, like a lot of their stuff. They, if you start putting your logo on a crowbar and selling it, then yeah, that is pretty like tongue in cheek, as they have done. But I passed the Supreme store in Wicker Park by one of my job sites and it's still
0: full of people. Like the
1: logo is alive in that way.
0: Yeah, I don't like I don't really associate Supreme with logo prep. No. I associate yeah. that more with like um Street, street streetwear white Beast stuff too. Yeah. yeah.
1: But it's, it shows that we still just have this like adherence to brands in that way. Yeah. yeah.
0: One sort of like hyper adherence to brands is um, there was this moment, which I actually didn't get around to researching this. I kind of forgot to, but there were like these, I saw this actually on some like runway images, but also I saw it on like e-girls and e-boys around like 2014 maybe, but there were all these like garments where people would put like like a NASCAR logo, a McDonald's logo, a NASA (laughs) logo. It would be like a whole garment where the entire shirt was filled with logos in this um, accelerationist way. Wow. So I don't know if you know too much about accelerationism. Oh, yeah. One of the most famous, like, texts from accelerationism is called, like, Three Essays on Accelerationism. The second essay is on accelerationist aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And so the author thought that, like, the way to get out of capitalism might be through, like, making it more extreme, like, the way out is the way through. Mm -hmm. And so he suggested that, like, people should just start wearing, like, corporate head-to-toe logos, logo corporate yeah. logos and just embrace, like, corporatism as much as they can in their daily lives and then maybe we'll get out of it. Hmm. I, uh, I don't know if I agree
1: with that. I, I see, like, reasoning-wise where he's coming from that, like, oh, if, yeah, if this thing is going to happen, we might as well burn the wick quicker and then get done with it. But
0: I don't see how, yeah. Yeah. It kind of did happen in a way. I, or I mean, like... Examples of that aesthetic were created, not like they were Mm -hmm. adopted in mass, but yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. Logo clothing that I own, I
1: do have some like tongue in cheek logo stuff. I've collected a few tank tops of cigarette brands because (laughs) I don't, I don't smoke, but I just think it's funny that like tank tops are very sporty, and they're just these ones are selling products that make it hard to be sporty (laughs) because you're coughing. But I have a Newport one, and then I have a Marlboro Menthols uh, muscle tank as well. But other than that, like actual logo clothing, I like to wear, um, like logos from stuff that I'm personally involved in. So like my rugby team, my school, my fraternity, stuff like that, that I actually like have some kind of say in, I always say like no free clout. Like I'm not going to wear someone's like logo
0: without compensation, you know? Yeah. For me, like, I guess, I just, if I'm going to wear something that is a logo, I want to kind of think it's not a logo. Yeah. Like like... an example of that for me is Umbro. I didn't really know about Umbro until maybe like mid-college, I never saw it growing up, but it's like a soccer brand. I I don't own one, but I wouldn't actually mind if I purchased a t-shirt that said Umbro and had that logo on it. It's a good logo. logo looks cool and I don't really associate it with a brand. Another is actually 1992. Um 1992 is like this clothing brand that was like sort of racing mm. car themed. Um Yeah. Is this still around. Is this no, this, still these this? are cool. Man, Do I saw like, for quite a bit. You're looking at 1992.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. DuPont oh, yeah. or DuPont. Oh, all these are different. All these are slightly Yeah. Oh, I see.
0: Yeah. I see. Yeah, 1992. I don't think it exists as much now it's like it was like relatively popular a few years ago but they do embody this sort of like accelerationist aesthetic where it's the whole garment is covered in logos but for them I was okay with maybe wearing them because the name of the brand was just numbers (laughs) (laughs) it's sort of like when I I've always shied away from like wearing clothing with like Japanese or Arabic text or Mm -hmm. anything like that because it's cultural appropriation or whatever but yeah, I don't know. If if it's in something that's like difficult to interpret, like I don't know the brand or it's just numbers or it's mm-hmm. in a script that I can't read, like I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. I guess it is just that I don't like, yeah, I don't want to associate myself with Evercoming Fitch or any of these brands. Mm-hmm. Like I never bought, bought into the lifestyle they were selling. Mm-hmm. I wonder if people who did,
1: I mean, so I wore the stuff growing up, but it felt like it would be harder not to. It was just, I was in middle school. It was like sixth grade. My mom would just buy me stuff from the mall um, and it would just have a logo on it. It was, I think it was more of an opt-out system than people remember. <laughs> like a, yeah, it was, it was difficult not to.
0: I remember one time with my dad, I told him that like I needed to get a hoodie and I told him I wanted one without a brand on it. And this was middle school, very early middle school at like the peak of logo prep. And we went to some like really random shop and <laughs> He bought me a sweater that I think was for like, not a sweater, a hoodie that was for like construction workers or something. <laughs> but it was like the only thing I could think of that didn't have like a big logo on it. Oh, it yeah. was really hard to mm. find stuff that didn't have that. Oh, that's interesting. I had this idea because many years ago, back when I was even in high school, I was wondering to myself, why do people wear clothing with logos on it? Like, what are they into? And I remember talking to like an older family member and they told me about how some sort of family member that we had would like make their own clothing from scratch. And I was like, people used to make their own clothing from scratch. <laughs> um yeah. yeah, back in the day, like some people, the majority of their wardrobe, they would make themselves. And I, I started to wonder like, oh, is that what people, or why logos became popular? It's because there was a way to prove you didn't make your clothing yourself. Oh. I don't think that's really the case, but there might be a little bit of that there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Okay, so did you own Abercrombie & Fitch? Like, which brands did you wear? Abercrombie & Fitch, mostly.
1: I think I would wear this one, like, zip-up hoodie from Abercrombie & Fitch. Just all the time. I think the pants fit me pretty well. So I wore those. I think I had, like, a Hollister thing. But, yeah. The stores, we should talk about the stores themselves. Specifically, Abercrombie & Hollister had this very, like, different from the rest of the mall design. They cover, They didn't have displays on the outside was one thing. They put these, like, California bungalow shutters over the uh, doors. And then I believe Hollister, but not Abercrombie, would have this, like, boardwalk, yeah, yeah, would have a boardwalk porch on it, which was later found to be in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So they had to, like, spend a bajillion to get all those taken out. Also, Hollister spent $70 million installing live stream... TVs in their stores that showed just the beach in Hollister, California. Um, Which is a crazy amount of money when you really think about it. And like you think about how many like, that's a big undertaking, just like mounting TVs everywhere, the material cost and all that. Like all to just hammer down that idea that like, you know, wherever you are, if you're in a sleepy mall outside of Toledo, Ohio, you can like have a part of the beachy dream. Which does have like parallels to the like, the surfing craze of the 1960s, which swept the whole country, despite like surfing only really being possible in a few areas. Um, it was just the idea of it is very easily sold to people who doesn't want to be a sunnier, beachier, carefree version of themselves.
0: I've never worn clothing from any of these brands, but like my closest thing to interacting with them was entering like an Abercrombie and Fitch maybe twice in my life. Uh, and I do remember a very strong scent, even on the outside, mm-hmm. entering the store. And I remember, like, seeing an employee there that, like, I wouldn't say they were, like, super hot. It was a woman. <laughs> I would say they were super hot. But I remember them being like, oh, they look a lot nicer, though, than the average person. Mm-hmm. And through thinking about retail so much this week, something I realized today was, like, I don't have to, like, buy it when I'm in the moment. I'm not in the store. Mm-hmm. When I'm in a store, I don't want to have to go back and spend an hour, like, another day of the week. Going back in just to buy something. I'm Mm -hmm. more inclined to buy something when I'm in person because, like, the convenience of getting it there. Yeah, you already uh, there, you might as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's one of the reasons why I think having a retail footprint is still important, Um, at least for consumers like me, because I actually, I'm less inclined to buy things like I see online. The number of like purchases I make for clothing through the internet is maybe like five, 10 a year, like, very Mm -hmm. few. Mm
1: I like online shopping more. I just like the sitting and waiting. I like to put it into the cart and then just really think about like, all right, would I wear this? Would I use this? Would I actually do it? And then just like, once
0: it's been on my mind for a month or so, it's like, all right, time to pull yeah. the trigger. But yeah. You know what we have in common though? I actually primarily shop through eBay. <laughs> oh yeah, no. I yeah. This
1: is, uh, Poshmark, old Etsy, there's always like a upcharge in there. I think it's just because, I think maybe the standard of, Quality there is a little higher. People have picked through and they've just kind of had the good stuff, but waiting through eBay is the best way to find deals. I actually, when I buy like Oxford cloth, button down dress shirts, um, you can use the minus feature in eBay where you can exclude search terms. Basically it's like a reverse search. And so I always do minus logo. So there's no logos on the dress shirts. And I'll, I'll often just do minus Ralph, minus Polo, minus figure. Like I just take all these brands out just because it's like a way to guarantee you're not going to get these, you know, logo kind of things. I actually remove logos from a lot of my clothing too. My, I like wearing Dickies pants at work, but I think because they're very like, I don't know, they look kind how, of dressy. How much work is involved in removing the logo? Not much. A seam ripper. If you have yeah. a seam ripper or just a knife, you can yeah. do it. It would be hard to pull out an embroidered logo is one thing. I've Found like somewhere elsewhere and stuff I really like, but I don't want to have the logo. But apparently it's it's like you destroy it by removing it, which sounds intentional, but I yeah. don't know.
0: Yeah. But yeah, I primarily use eBay because I boycotted Amazon my whole life. I've never had an account.
1: Whoa. Respect. I wish I could be like that. No, I'm weak. Yeah.
0: My like anti corporate sentiment runs deep and it runs young. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's been there a long time.
1: Yeah. Oh, speaking of eBay. On eBay, I had seen a very preppy uh, rugby shirt. It was color blocked, which I always like. So it was like all it's like primary colors, color blocked, but embroidered on the chest of it was Northrop Grumman, the arms manufacturer. (laughs) And I was like, man, I could try and pull this off in an ironic way. But like, I don't think I can. I don't think I can have my cake and eat it too, where I get to bitch and moan about the military-industrial complex and then wear a cool Northrop Grumman <laughs> rugby shirt.
0: I mean, I I know a fair amount about the military-industrial complex, and that rings a bell. That name, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's not like working around an Raytheon T-shirt.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. That's like, <laughs> but it is. It's not as famously evil as Raytheon. Yeah, um, but it is. Yeah, a defense contractor, and all that comes with it. I have friends who work for defense contractors. I'm fine with it. Um, I, I had mentioned uh, my friend who got excommunicated by another friend for working at Raytheon while being a vegan uh, Buddhist. That's the kind of stuff where I do think you have to draw a line. Like,
0: <laughs> yeah, have yeah, just like you know, words don't mean nothing. Like, all right, what's actually happening here? Speaking of like defense contractors, so I'm pretty sure that part of the reason why these brands became popular was the response to 9/11, because. Empire & Fitch, and all of these other brands—they marketed, thems- marketed themselves as having like an all-American look—and yeah. people were trying to dress in a patriotic way, I suppose.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I felt like you were offered different American, different visions
1: of America, and the idea of like Americanism, like American even, apparel, even could American be, apparel. Yeah, yeah, American apparel was still like you could be indie sleeves, hipster, probably against the Iraq War, and still wear you know American apparel. Um, And then the other side is Abercrombie, which, yeah, just going for that kind of, yeah, in their little lookbook and everything, it's all about how you have to look classic and American
0: and wholesome. They don't use that word,
1: but. um,
0: Yeah. So the lookbook that Joseph just referenced, that's something that um, Dwight McBride mentions and talks about and why I hate Abercrombie and Fitch. So. There's these catalogs that they would come out with, like little magazines that would have all of the uh, photographs that like Bruce Weber took of hot guys and girls. But this like lookbook, there's a document basically that lists what Amber Crumbie and Fitch models should look like. And they use words like all-American, natural. Mm-hmm. And then they would put examples of like what they wanted both models and employees to look like and, you know, all white, blonde, very athletic, Mm preppy, ultimately.
1: Yeah. It's just so interesting. One single man's, like, vision, and I'm just gonna say it, kind of his fetish a little bit, the way it feels. Like, being so detail-oriented with, like, how these models should look and how the stores were laid out, too. He was really meticulous, and people use the word micromanager to describe Mike Jeffries all the time. I just, what would motivate someone to take a lagging outdoors? That's kind brand? of like
0: all retail though. I, I mean, I haven't worked in retail that much. I've only ever worked in American Apparel, mm-hmm. but like from what I know from other people I've heard, every single store is kind of like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but on the like CEO level that he was like, he was determining like the,
1: uh, I don't know, the details regarding the mannequins and the displays and like there was very rigid, rigid standards. Um, And, of course, this leaked into other parts of his life. They have, like, of all the documents that became public and all these court filings, you have, like, uh, this huge, thick book on code of conduct when Mike Jeffries is on the private plane. Um, One of the things was when he asks something of you, you have to say, no problem. Uh, And it's like, this is as opposed to other phrases. Like, yes, sir, that's not good, but no problem is great. And I think it's because he probably sees that phrase as, like, classic, American, Californian, like, all the things that he likes, like— so if he, even in affirmative answers he has,
0: you know, a that's preference. like the Californian in him. So this is something I guess I've sort of gleaned from my mom's side, which is from California. When I spend time with them, I sort of pick up on why Californians are such nimbys. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I think that when every single day is what you think of as paradise, where it's yeah, really nice outside and you're not interacting with you know, other people or you're just driving around and there's so you're so insulated from everyone else's problems, even your own problems in a way, mm-hmm. that you get like so irritated about like the littlest things. I remember driving around with one of my cousins in a car <laughs> and um we were driving around his neighborhood and he was like, Look, they built a hotel over there. And I was like, What, you think your city shouldn't have hotels? Oh, yeah, what's <laughs> the idea? And he yeah, was like cool well, he was like, Yeah, well, not near where I live. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like, why are you
1: even worried about this? Yeah. No. Um, yeah, NIMBYism is interesting. Um, <laughs> there is a, what is this? I think a soccer pitch coming out to like, like a whole soccer complex coming out to the sleepy part of Woodstock, Illinois, that my like aunt lives in. And she's like organizing. She's getting involved. She's calling people like she it yeah. reminds me of, you don't, you don't watch Mad Men, but B- Betty Draper gets into local politics to fight like a reservoir getting built nearby. But yeah, it's, it's that, I think it's, an, it's a desire to live a frictionless life out in the Sunbelt. And yeah, in car-dependent Sunbelt suburbia, it is just like, I think a fear of any kind of inconvenience or pain or anything. (laughs) That's why I think, I think I've said this before, maybe even on the podcast, but that like the Sunbelt is the most American part of America in my mind. Um, You can argue that like Texas is the most American because of their independent spirit and all that, or like the East coast, like Philadelphia, that's more American. But like, I think there's something about the, I don't know, the um, sense of like indignation
0: and uh, deservedness. I feel like the American temperament is just like a state of unjustified fear. I mean, there are actually things in America that are pretty serious. Like, we do have higher rates of homicide and mass shootings Mm -hmm. and things like that. There are things to be afraid of. But overall, you know, living in Chicago, we're purported to be the most violent city in America. And we are in terms of, like, the number of homicides, it is the highest. But proportionally... We're the 35th most violent city in the country, which yeah. no one would ever think. Mm-hmm. But look at the, if you look at the numbers. Yeah,
1: uh-huh. yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other stuff. I want to touch on
1: malls a little bit more. Um, I think it's interesting. Malls kind of supported these, you know, smaller stores that w- previously would have had to have their own location, um, and they would have had to try and apply to more people. Um, malls kind of allowed for a bit of like a cultural balkanization thing where like, I don't, you know, you didn't have to sell to everyone. Like you can just make your footprint back. It's funny how malls, the stores and malls are so similar to like the food court, like the food courts and malls, they were not generalist kind of places. Like they were very specific, you know, because they made up for it in total um, with their uh, diversity. But yeah, I, sometimes I miss malls a little bit. I don't know. It was close to a common agora. I used to be sad
0: that malls were dying, but then I realized, like, through strong towns, how financially insolvent they were always destined to be. Yeah, they were never going to work.
1: Yeah. I do find city malls interesting. Uh, This would be like Water Tower Place in Chicago. This was cities trying to defend themselves from the loss of business to suburban malls. Um, And the way they did it was just trying to copy the formula, um, but make it taller because, you know... Real estate's more expensive in the city, and yeah, I find uh, Water Tower Place Mall in Chicago like beautiful. It's the '80s luxe. It's got like green granite in some places or green marble. It's got this huge tall atrium, but yeah, it's anchor tenant left. American yeah. Girl doll left. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> uh, you, uh, you know what? You're right. That is that is the true anchor tenant there. Um, but no, Macy's was taking up all the all the retail space there, and that's still unused. Um, every so often people just say, I don't think this can be done, uh, but it should be an Ikea. You know, it's a giant windowless, like three s- floors of space. Um, it'd be amazing if that was an Ikea, but the whole loading dock thing would be kind of tricky. It'd be cool if it was an Ikea showroom
0: and then you could get stuff shipped to you
1: or yeah. something.
0: Um, I don't know. I don't know how. Yeah. It- I don't think I'll ever be at, at an Ikea again for as long as I live unless they build one in the city. Oh. Cause like. I think I've looked at them on a map, and it's not like they're just in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. They're like on the suburbs, on the edge of the suburbs. It's like they're really far out. So the reason for that is IKEA does not want to pay for land. They know they
1: provide such a good service. They barter with city governments, and they just like, in Las Vegas, they didn't have an IKEA for the longest time. There's actually a service that would go to IKEA in California and buy stuff for you and drive it back. Um, And they finally opened one, and I'm pretty sure they had to pay nothing for the land. Because like, yeah. Ikea knows that they're going to be a jobs generator and an income generator for the area. Um, so they can kind of just like be really confident in that way. But no, I'll take you out to Ikea. Yeah. I love Ikea. I feel, <laughs> I feel, I love Ikea so much. It's just like very cozy to me. I think I said that in a previous F as well. Yeah, um, but, but yeah.
0: yeah, I feel like that's always, I mean, for politicians that like being able to say that jobs were created in their mm-hmm. communities, but there's a difference between jobs that extract wealth out of a community and jobs that like help circulate it within the community. So Mm -hmm. corporate jobs are gonna go into the places where power concentrate, like including Abercrombie and Fitch. The money's just gonna be funneled out to where their headquarters is, probably New York City. Yeah. Yeah. I like um, one of the demolition subcontractors I work with,
1: um, they call what they do more deconstruction. And uh, so they'll save more items and donate them or sell them. Uh, They'll try and recycle what they can and not just trash stuff. But they call this deconstruction and they say like, oh, all the different ways that deconstruction is different from demolition. And one of the things they said is because you actually have to take care with stuff. It does take longer, but one of their things they said, it employs more people. They were advertising that it actually like, and I like that. I think that more companies like, I think other companies would brag about like, look at how lean our staff is. <laughs> I don't know, I, I think that people I think that having a lot of low skill jobs is good for the
0: stability of a society. Like it's just a good valve for people. So construction jobs from like a public sector perspective are an opportunity to generate jobs. That's oftentimes actually kind of why there are cost overruns with construction projects, particularly for public transit projects, because like they don't mind if there's too many people (sighs) hired. It's kind of viewed as like an opportunity to hire people in the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I don't know, construction is like the last,
1: since manufacturing has wound down so much in America, like construction is that last bastion of low education, high paying jobs um, that can get you into the middle class or something approaching the middle class. Um, also, consultancy. Consultancy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> low education, <laughs> high, <laughs> high paying. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the place I get my haircut, they have a tally count of how many times a guy getting his haircut is a consultant. I think they crossed like 30 or something. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's, yeah. Like in a day? No, 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 no. It's not every day. No, this is just in total. Yeah. Um,
0: Different individual consultants. Yeah. Yeah. Something I want to circle back to is McBling. So McBling is an aesthetic that was coined through a Facebook group. So on Facebook, there was a Facebook group called Y2K Aesthetic Institute or like Y2K Aesthetics. And... There was then, like, a spinoff group that I think was originally called, like, mid-2000s or something. It was very generic, but then they started to, like, standardize the aesthetic, and then they coined a term. They had, like, a poll through Facebook, Mm -hmm. and what people settled on was McBling, which was a word that I really didn't like. Originally, (laughs) I did not vote for that one, but I've come to like it. I think it's fine. But McBling is very different than Logo Prep. So Mm -hmm. McBling is a lot more pink. It's more so like what you'd see Paris Hilton wearing. Yeah, I'm picturing the juicy sweatsuit. Yeah. Yeah, it's more like Dubai luxury clothing. It's like very feminine. It is a bit more formal, actually, than Logo Prep. You think so? The sweatpants? Well, I don't associate it just with sweatpants. I do. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, within Logo Prep, I could see, like, you know, you can see Paris Hilton next to a guy wearing a suit, mm-hmm. like, you can't yeah. see, like, Amber Cromb in any way really involving a suit.
1: Yeah, no. I was, always, I was thinking that about Mike Jeffries, of, like, what was he seen in, and he wasn't seen in a suit, typically. Like, I'm sure he would get in a suit and tie for, like, you know, investor calls and stuff yeah. like that. But he seemed to be trying to model that, you know, hang loose Californian easiness all the time.
0: Yeah. McBling had a very different aesthetic. And so for Logo Prep, they were really interested in brands, obviously. But McBling was more so luxury brands that were truly oh, yeah. luxury, like Louis Vuitton specifically, I think mm-hmm. was the biggest one. Yeah. I guess yep. Maybe that's what my um, my
1: roommate I was mentioning was more in the style of. Yeah, he just loved the like name brand fashion. On, a, on the podcast Nymphet Alumni, they talk about fashion core sometimes, which is like fashion about the industry of fashion. Basically, like wearing a Karl Lagerfeld T-shirt or something. Um,
0: I yeah. never liked the people that I met growing up that were like I like Vogue magazine.
1: Yeah, that always felt. I don't know. Unless you like live in New York, that always feels like you're <laughs> you're implying that you hate your small town when you're like <laughs> that cosmopolitan. And I say that as someone who comes off as pretty <laughs> yeah cosmopolitan.
0: Yeah, but there was yeah. this period though in the mid two thousands where if you did want to dress more alternative, your options were to buy like, designer clothing or make it yourself. Mm-hmm. There really were no options until an Urban outfitter started to market to youth, mm-hmm. but there was this really big gap where like, people who wanted to dress different really didn't have any options mm-hmm. because clothing became so simple. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but yeah, I think at this point in time, uh, this is when clothing just got the most basic I think it's ever gonna get. While as well as well, I do see people all the time who I think, you know, dress as simple as they can be, it's not the same. Like I walk around in public and it's not like ninety-five out of a hundred that are dressed mm-hmm. in like jeans and a T shirt. Now you'll see like a much broader range than you used to see during this oh. time period.
1: Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it depends on the neighborhood too. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like if you're out in the suburbs, you're just gonna see jeans and a T shirt everywhere. <laughs>
0: And then just like a, you know, depending on the weather, you know, a zip-up jacket. I know that within my own family, though. Like, there's been, like, a noticeable shift in a lot of people's wardrobes. Mm -hmm. Definitely, like, post-2015, people have just started to dress more formal and Mm -hmm. experimental. I think uh, one of the
1: overlaps between Abercrombie and American Apparel is we're talking about, like, alternative clothing. They were both kind of firmly almost anti-alternative, especially in their treatment of... I had mentioned the jewelry thing with um, thumb rings, but also tattoos. That was a common thing between yeah. American Apparel and Abercrombie, that they just kind of wanted the models to be more of a blank slate. Um, for American Apparel, it was to show off the clothes, you know, like the clean lines of the clothes. I think for Abercrombie, it's just because that wasn't uh, <laughs> Mike's fetish. You know, he wasn't into tattoos. He just No, wanted, it, like-
0: I think for American Apparel, it was that, like, that was what Dove wanted. Mm-hmm. I also think that for American Apparel, they... I don't really know, but I think behind the scenes, they definitely had to think about how they were different from Urban Outfitters, and Urban Outfitters mm. had to think about how they were different from American Apparel. Yeah, They had to differentiate themselves from each other. And one of the main ways they did that was, like, employees at Urban Outfitters, you know, tattoos, gauges, yeah. nose piercings. Mm-hmm. And American Apparel, like, if you had tattoos, they you're expected to cover them. If you had a nose ring, good luck moving up in the company. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting, I think they both came out of a rejection of like the busyness
1: visually that was like alternative clothing, you know, this is the end of grunge in the 90s. Um, So like layering flannels and distressed stuff. But Abercrombie did distressed stuff as well. I mean, everyone did back then. Have you
0: ever seen any videos where, I've seen these like through TikTok and Instagram reels, where like Chinese workers will be making distressed jeans. Yeah,
1: so. no, it's kind of, yeah,
0: it's, it's, it's
1: so sh- great. People
0: should not be buying them. No. It's like really disturbing. Like I saw a reel of a woman just working on one pair of pants like quickly <laughs> and their whole body, and they're wearing a face mask, but their whole body just got covered in like blue fuzz. Yeah, that, like, yeah, that doesn't get in fuss, their, yeah. In their oh. lungs for sure. Oh, geez. Yeah, I
1: distressed my stuff enough. Like just by wearing it. I don't know. I always try and buy like nicer quality stuff so it doesn't blow out, but yeah, I, I have a pair of like oh, these like Foreman pants from Duluth Trading Co. Probably one of the more norm core things I've gotten. It's just yeah. these like pants that would be good for the construction site, but they had a little bit of spandex in them to stretch, and I think that's what caused them. I've like blown out a back pocket because I pull my knife out of the back of it so many times. I've just like destroyed it.
0: I'm low-key yeah. kind of obsessed with the idea of Duluth. <laughs> <laughs> Duluth Trading? It is yep. maybe the straightest Thing. <laughs> the no, not L. the brand, but the city.
1: Oh, the city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Duluth, it's North in Minnesota, Dakota. and oh, it's
0: Minnesota. like, it's on the edge of like Superior, like on its westernmost edge, and it has like a very old like grid and a lot of old buildings, oh. and it's like this real gem that I think is going to grow with climate refugees from oh, the yeah. south and the west in the coming century. Oh. I think it's going to grow quite a lot.
1: God, Duluth is going to have its moment. <laughs> yeah,
0: and also it's just like a cool name. But yeah, no, if no, you look at is. pictures of it, it's a very, like, it has the aesthetic that I want.
1: Yeah, I like, um, I don't know, seeing grid-based cities in, um, like, the American former frontier, you know, like, in, Mon- like, Billings, Montana, and stuff. I love that. Like, you can just kind of picture it back when it was, like, in cowboy times. Yeah. Know, like, dust streets. Um, I don't know, I think that's very cool. Oh, on the pants... Yeah, if Abercrombie could be summed up in a garment, it would be the jeans because, like, yeah, it's the shirts. Oh, I don't know. It's, it's, an, it's a tie between just the classic shirt with a big-ass logo on it and then the jeans. The jeans are important because yeah. it's one of the few clothes that the models were actually wearing in the advertisements. This was commonly remarked on at the time of, like, how are they selling clothes if the models aren't even wearing clothes?
0: And then that yeah. just goes into the idea of they're selling an idea. Um, they didn't get as ridiculous as American Apparel, not to keep bringing them up. Yeah. Because one of my <laughs> one of my favorite American Apparel ads is this one where it's selling gloves, and guess how they're selling it? <laughs> the woman's wearing nothing else besides the gloves. Yeah, she's just holding up gloves, and they're yeah. kind of covering her chest, but she's just fully naked with fingerless yeah. gloves. Yeah. And it just says gloves in yeah. American <laughs> Apparel. It's like it's the cheekiness <laughs> that people loved about the brand. It's that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, what situation would you be
1: in where you just <laughs> wear fingerless gloves? Yeah, it's just like being <laughs> naked with socks on feels more naked than being naked. <laughs> like, I can only imagine what being <laughs> naked aside for fingerless gloves feels like. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so these jeans, they were low rise for one thing. That's another 2000s thing. And I've harped on this in the past. Um, very big fan of pants hitting the natural waist. A lot of things have gone up and down in. Fashion, you know, stuff like lapel sizes and uh, collar types. But one consistency is that men's pants have always been at the natural waist. Like, we think of high waisted pants, saying that these things only started changing like within the past 20 years. It's actually kind of crazy. But <sighs> yeah, it's for the low rise makes sense for the Abercrombie things. Because if you're, if you're ever shirtless in natural rise pants, it does look a little weird. Like, yeah, I don't know, it just kind of eats up your belly button. Like it looks great with a shirt, of course. Like it makes your legs look long um, and your torso look nice. Um, but this just shows that like the way they treated jeans, especially in the ads where the guy's wearing like nothing but the jeans, like no shoes, nothing. Like it's almost, they made jeans to almost like an underwear item, because it is like implied to be the one thing that you're wearing. Yeah, um, Yeah. Uh, Abercrombie and Fish used to be under the same parent company as uh, The Limited, and they owned Victoria's Secret
0: and all that, uh, which is just a
1: little aside. But yeah, but then it spun off on its own.
0: But yeah. yeah. Would you say that? I would say that Victoria's Secret is more McBling than logo prep. What would you say?
1: Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, but like Victoria's Secret, I think in this time also branched out and sold just like their logo on stuff, you know, not just their lingerie. Yeah. And that's like. Famously this story of the guy who founded Victoria's Secret before it was bought up by this large limited brand thing He wanted a store where men could go in and buy like clothing for their wife and not feel embarrassed Um, And now it's just the definition of like it's it's an embarrassing place for a guy to be I don't know how he messed that up so bad, but (laughs) yeah, I guess
0: in high school. I knew this other um, gay teen in my school where um, He looked a little bit androgynous, but he went into (laughs) Like Victoria's Secret is like a twelve-year-old boy, and like was like and got sized <laughs> for fun. What? And he was like a triple A cup or something. Oh my god, that's not how those work. That's not yeah. how sizes work. Yeah,
1: um, it'd be fun if we recorded this at a mall. That would be funny if we just went to, to a semi abandoned I feel like mall we're more likely to get
0: kicked out of a mall than say a department store though. Yeah. Because I've seen videos where like if you're recording, the uh, security guards will be like, get out of here.
1: Yeah. Um, the status of malls in Chicagoland is, yeah, I mentioned the water tower place is looking pretty grim right now. Um, Woodfield Mall is still doing strong. Um, it's interesting, like their first appeal was that they were indoor and conditioned. But even in cold weather places like Chicago, the ones that seem to be doing better are the ones that have prioritized like outdoor space, kind of outlet mall feeling.
0: Yeah, I guess. Well, now the way that malls market themselves is through experiences, mm-hmm. which I noticed definitely the last time I went to um, the Water Tower Place. Yeah. Like you'll see things in malls now, like VR experiences. Yeah, you can make slime and stuff like uh-huh. that. Immersive experiences, stuff yeah. like
1: that. Like they're literally just like racking their brain to think of stuff that cannot be done online but can be done in person. so the rise of the ethno mall. Um, which is like that the, the a mall will become like known as like pr- primarily Mexican American, and then it'll have stores that like serve to that area, and so it's like keeping those alive. Yeah, there's um, kind
0: of one in um, Chinatown that I went to like two years ago. It's where this like hot pot place is called Kiaolin. really good, recommend it. <laughs> but I remember going to this restaurant and I was in this like Chinese mall that's kind of near the river.
1: Yeah, yeah, Jefferson Square. Oh, that's what it's was called. called. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I was following the construction of that. Yeah, I had I had moved out of my like place in kind of Chinatown, when that was getting built. I was always curious about it though. Yeah. Oh,
0: you lived in Chinatown.
1: I lived in so north of Bridgeport and so close to the highway that I was essentially in Chinatown. I was I was on yeah. Wentworth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was nice. I don't know. It's a good area. I really liked my neighbors. Yeah, it was living on the highway was bad for me, bad for your brain, of course, though. Just like the dull roar of cars all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a luxury mall out by the airport that's kind of weird. It's all like I went to like a Loro piano store, piano store over there. It was all just very like I think the idea is you fly in to Chicago and you just immediately go to the luxury place. Or it felt like a duty free turned into a mall. It was all just luxe goods. It didn't feel sad, it, it was clean and nice. Yeah, um, but it still had all the trappings of a mall. You get Auntie Anne's pretzels and stuff, which my friend told me in Shanghai they have Auntie Anne's. That just blows my mind for some reason. But I think like it's easily understood. It's like you don't need, I don't know. Yeah, they don't have pretzels originally in China, but it's pretty easy to to parse. You know, when you see them, like yeah, it's cheesy, it's warm, it's salty. Like you're you're gonna have a good time.
0: Yeah, I like pretzels. I don't know if I've ever had that though. Auntie Anne's. The last time I had like a really big pretzel was in Milwaukee. <laughs> it was, like, the size of, like, a pizza. It was huge. Yeah, yeah,
1: it's, like, the big German one, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. That's, um, we got one of those at Prost here in Chicago. Oh, yeah. They have a big, uh, big pretzel. Yeah.
0: yeah. We uh-huh. should talk a little bit about the other brands more, though. So, uh, Ember coming Fitch, we've talked probably enough about that. Mm-hmm. Aeropostale, American Eagle, Hollister. Do you have any takes on any of those?
1: Um, I'm trying to think. Aeropostale, I I'm trying to think we're there...
0: Well, to me, the so aesthetic so of their clothing is actually more quintessential to logo prep because of the color scheme that I that yeah, they had. Yeah, a lot of past Like they styles. had these, like they had like highlighter pink, highlighter blue, this sort of like iPod green. If you know what I'm talking <laughs> about. I could see yeah. that, like a lime green. That yeah, was kind of. Yeah, like in my head when I was getting this idea for this episode, and I started to compile images on Pinterest for our Pinterest board. I started to look in keyword, look up keywords like Hollister, American Eagle, things like that. I found that the brand that I was like associating this aesthetic with the most was um, Aeropostale, mm-hmm. which I didn't really realize at the time. Um, but yeah, the color scheme that they had, and then just like something about the uniformity of their hoodies, <laughs> I think is more quintessential to this brand than Abercrombie um, mm-hmm. and Fitch even is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially God when the um,
1: when the logos were like bejeweled. Around the outside of them too. That was the next level. That is the crossing of that is into McBling. You know, because it literally is bling, like it is, jewels. Yeah, yeah. I think Aeropostale, Aeropostal. Yeah, I definitely had one of these. Yeah, and they always had their yeah 1987 on it. Yeah, just putting years on stuff that was always big at the time,
0: whatever the year of
1: founding, was. Yeah. Big embroidered logos.
0: I really hope that brand, I'm sorry, I really hope that trend dies of putting the year something was established on garments, but there's actually like a clothing store in my neighborhood that opened and it says, like, establish 2021 on it.
1: Yeah, that's, <laughs> you don't do that until you've, like, crossed a decade or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> that is, yeah, I've seen some businesses around me. They're like, yeah, establish 2022. And it's like, just have the space for that, but don't use it until, like, you know, yeah. you reach a certain I amount mean, of...
0: I mean, Fitch is kind of cool in that it's been around 100 years. That's worth showing off, I suppose.
1: Oh, yeah, no, that's like, but it's it's one of those things of, like, it's kind of a ship of theseus thing like yeah. like in what way is it still around <laughs> like
0: the company has just been like yeah. traded hands and it's so unrecognizable from when it started one yeah. remind I, I, I mean one of, of the it. things that um, Dwight McBride talks about in his essay is how there is sort of a ship of theseus thing in terms of just like americanism mm-hmm. cuz the brand was like quintessentially american like and it's time um, yeah. teddy roosevelt would like hunt mm-hmm. in amber and fitch clothing i think the American aesthetic carried through from, like, when it was founded up until, like, mid-2000s and today. hmm
1: Yeah. Long women's polos. That was a thing. Um, I think this was as we started to lower the rise of pants. You know, you, could, you had two options. You could either crop the top, you know, and show off more midriff. Or you could do, yeah you know, the long polo shirts. This is a this is Hollister one that I'm looking at right now. So
0: we should probably talk a little bit about Uggs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. What did you think about girls with Uggs? Um, it was so standard. Every girl had Uggs, wore
1: Uggs. They were just like an understood thing. They were they were called basic. The second like basic became like a cultural item was something like you could accuse someone of being. But let's be I'd say someone, but let's be honest, it was girls. It was always people accusing girls of being basic. Yeah, the Uggs had their they're fall from grace. They're actually like an, an Australian brand of all things. I cannot imagine wearing those in the yeah, Australian. Yeah, they're more like a climate. fall or
0: slash winter garment. Yeah.
1: I think it's I think it is one of those things that makes more sense and it's exported to country than in its original country.
0: You know? Yeah. That's called like reshoring. So reshoring is when a country will like they'll outsource both the production and the consumption hmm. of goods. That's kind of how um Japan's economy is structured. So Think about like Uniqlo, Mm -hmm. the Japanese are like both outsourcing the production to like, say, third world countries, Mm -hmm. and then they're outsourcing the consumption largely to other first world countries. They do this with their car brands as well, Yeah, where they as workers are largely like middle management and they're doing Mm -hmm. the design and production and the like higher level work that involves a lot of thinking and skill. Yeah.
1: No, it makes sense as being a geographically and resource resource limited country, you know, to pivot to more of the services and management side. And then you That's know, largely
0: gonna that's largely to their benefit because of population decline. Yeah. Um Peter Zihan in his book The End of the World is just the beginning talks a bit about this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: No, it's
1: i it, I guess hmm. What they're giving up on is that like these are jobs that could go to people, but if you have a shrinking population, you don't want a surplus of jobs. Like you might as well, yeah, move the means of production closer to its end consumer and closer to the resources needed to produce it. Yeah. As well. Yeah. No, that makes sense. But in terms of the popularity somewhere else, I was thinking of like it's called like the ramen effect or the pizza effect, where like pizza was not common across Italy; it was just like a single regional thing that came to America, became huge in America, and then was re-exported back to Italy and taken a lot more seriously as a food and as a piece of cultural pride. Same with ramen. It wasn't like a standard part of the like average across Japan diet. It was just a food and eaten in some areas and then brought to America, made huge, re-exported. And it's always the, the taking more seriously too. That it's like, oh, not only do we do ramen, we we must have the best of it. So we should like compete in ramen quality. There should be a place that's known as amazing. There should be cities that really try and compete in this. But yeah, it's interesting. It's a re-exporting.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's any sort of way to make Uggs a superior product. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, there apparently are Uggs made in Australia that are like much nicer.
1: And then there's the Uggs that we all know. Like, yeah, yeah there's just like the two types of it. But yeah. yeah. I was always kind of curious, I've never worn them. I don't think they're often found in men's sizes, but they looked comfortable.
0: I mean, I think of the sort of different elements of logo prep, Uggs, I can sort of see how like an e-girl can (laughs) recontextualize them into something that's new. I can see them trying to like co-opt it. Mm -hmm. The sweaters though, I don't know. There's so many different aesthetics within the 2000s. This is not one that I've seen anyone try to touch with, like, a 10-foot pole. No, no,
1: no. The logos are so restricting. Like, yeah, 2000 stuff that people have brought back, they've done, like, spaghetti straps and low-rise stuff. Girls wearing that, like, bandana in their hair. You know, tiny sunglasses. It's a lot of stuff. Um,
0: Yeah, I mean, I do see, or I have seen examples of people dressing, like, an indie sleaze way or, mm -hmm, like, a Bella Swan way from Twilight. Mm Yeah, (laughs) There was, like... The Twilight resurgence through TikTok mm-hmm. like two years ago, I think. Yeah. And so girls were dressing in hoodies, but not really like Air Apostle hoodies. That was yeah, not a yeah. thing. It's just so limiting and of its time of
1: the, uh, of the logos. It just feels like you are like LARPing as that period, not finding inspiration from it. It just like eats up the whole outfit, the logo, basically.
0: Yeah. All right. Anything final thoughts? So there's a lot I don't know about this topic still, even though I feel like I really understand the aesthetic. One thing is, so there's Logo Prep bling, and then I feel like there is just sort of like a mainstream of mainstream that's still going on at the same time as Mm -hmm. those other two things concurrently, where there's like people in the Northeast probably still wearing like more formal preppy clothing. Mm -hmm. That was going on to your knowledge, right? Well, yeah. Uh,
1: Yeah, the mainline prep in the Northeast during this time. I think it was becoming more casual. You're seeing more polos where someone would have worn a dress shirt to something. But it was just kind of staying in the course. There is like a subset of preppy dressing that is kind of similar to this in the garishness. And that's, people call it go to hell. So like a classic thing is a pair of go to hell pants. That's just like a very loud pair of pants you'd wear to like play golf or something. So that could be like crazy patchwork madras. It could be bright pink like salmon. Uh, those those pants are often called Nantucket Reds. But yeah, so there is like, it is more of the playful, ostentatious side of preppy. So I think that the colors that were being used in logo prep made their way over to mainline prep as well. But yeah, another prep change during this time is denim making its way in more. Like yes, denim had been introduced to it in the 60s. I think people drew a firmer line. They're like, that's what the hippies wear. That's not what we wear, you know? Um, but the 2000s, for better or for worse, and I would say mostly for worse, was the dawn of, maybe this was the 90s too, the suit jacket or blazer with jeans, which I think has been very rarely pulled off successfully. Um, Ralph Lauren himself actually was a big fan of this, and I think he pulled it off to some degree, um, but yeah. Ralph Lauren is also an interesting figure because he's one of the like few straight male presences in fashion, it feels. But he often is, people say he's not a designer, really. Like he wasn't really drawing plans for clothes or anything. He was more of a, he was more of a brand man. You know, he was like building a brand and pulling existing clothing styles, sticking his logo on it, um, and just kind of inventing the idea of Ralph Lauren. Also in this time, he had a little more like Western influences. He's got this, another label under Ralph Lauren is RRL the double R stuff, and that's a little more Western-inspired. It's very funny because, again, he's just a Jewish guy from New York City. He is not either a blue-blooded blooded wasp or a uh, cowboy, but he loves to LARP as both, and he loves yeah. to, like, he genuinely likes wearing that stuff himself. He has a ranch out in the Southwest, and he loves to, like, sell this vision to people as well. Now, if you want to know more about Ralph Lauren, um, there is the Articles of Interest podcast, which was spun off the podcast 99% Invisible, and their most recent like they did a whole season on prep and then the later episodes of it are really focusing on ralph Lauren as like the face of prep in the 90s and 2000s and then the status of prep and trad stuff nowadays the um the whimsical kind of like wacky go to hell side is definitely um, embraced by rowing blazers which is a prep brand they do a lot of color block stuff and like zany colors um, and then also golf Lafleur, which is tyler the creator which takes a lot of like prep and trad elements, but adds like I don't know hip hop styling.
0: Yeah. yeah, I really liked Rowing Blazers. Actually, I looked at them this week. Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm just not preppy. There's something I don't. There's lines I'm just like not <laughs> interested in crossing. Yeah. But it looks nice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it mm-hmm. looks a lot better than what all this mid two thousands stuff yeah. is. No, yeah.
1: It, it has a little bit of streetwear influence, uh, definitely in the way they shoot. Their models and stuff, they're, shoot, they're shot more like streetwear as opposed to conventional, like menswear stuff. Um, and they do make, again, like blazers, but everything is very wink wink, wacky. Like, I, I don't know if I could really bring myself to buy any of their stuff just because it is very look at me. I think the clothes should speak for themselves. I don't want it to be too attention getting with them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I and mean, then do, do you think the point of prep overall, not just in this time mm-hmm. period, is a stand out or to blend in?
1: It is to blend in. It was kind of an agreed upon. Um, like prep and trad clothing, what it actually is, is it's a casualification of clothing. People don't realize this now because people see a dress shirt and they're like, oh, that's dressy. you know. But Oxford cloth is a more casual fabric as opposed to broadcloth. A button-down collar is more casual than um, uh, like a straight collar. And then patch pockets on a blazer, that's more casual. Non-pleated pants or flat front pants, those are more casual. Loafers, those are more, like these are all, it was a, I I always think it is like, in my personal opinion, it's like the Goldilocks amount. It's like the right, you take something dressy, you make it a little bit casual, not too casual, not denim with a a suit coat, kind of casual. But yeah, and it was, outside of the school environment, it was kind of an agreed upon way of dressing for a lot of people in the business world, too. (laughs) There's <laughs> an interesting case of this guy sued his employer for discrimination. It was a very multinational company, and they fired him for being too American. is what he was accusing them of. And some of the things they had said to him was that, like, uh, in a meeting, he was just wearing chinos, a button-down shirt, and a crew neck sweater. And that is just, you know, not how we dress for meetings. And it was just, everyone else was European and in a suit, and this guy was, like, cash American, basically.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of a big part of me doesn't relate to the people who embraced like this preppy look and wanting to dress like everyone else. But also if you, I know how that it does feel good to like meet an aesthetic standard, like mm-hmm. working for American apparel, feeling like I have the look yeah. and being told I had the look. Being given a rubric yeah. and like completing it. There is a satisfaction in that. Yeah. yeah. I think
1: trad dressing can draw a lot of kind of rules oriented people who want like a strict set of rules because it does feel like there is that in this style of like, oh, the jacket always has to be unstructured and the tie should have a dimple and it should be a 4 in hand knot. Like there's just kind of very prescriptive things. And you can either find like that liberating or restricting depending on, you know, what type of personality you are. I kind of like constraints and confines a bit. I think that that, I like to experiment
0: within reason, basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like to have a border to color in.
0: (laughs) I get that. So yeah, this has been pretty fun discussing logo prep. It's been a bit challenging for me because basically I did all of this retroactive research about brands I had no interest in when I was younger (laughs) that I just saw people I didn't like wearing. (laughs) (laughs) And I've learned a little bit more through you and the things I read this week. But Mm -hmm. there's a lot still to this that I'm sure other people could fill us in on if we ever wanted to touch back on this topic.
1: Mm -hmm. All right,
0: thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.